0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, who has returned And our special guest this week is Tom Nichols, contributor to The Atlantic. And Tom, you are no longer a professor at the War College. Is that right?
1: I am uh, days away from being sent off to my dacha, yes. Oh, okay. um, uh, (laughs) Excellent. I am about to retire from the Naval War College, but I'll keep on with Harvard Extension and The
0: Atlantic. Okay, excellent. Well, we're glad to have you, and dachas may become relevant in our second topic when we get to (laughs) Ukraine. But for now, I want to begin with a little talk about something that got a little attention this week namely, the Republican National Committee issued a denunciation of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for participating in the January 6th committee and saying faithfully that the events of January 6th were legitimate political discourse. So this received a certain amount of pushback, if not outright horror. And uh, let's hear from Senator Mitch McConnell.
1: It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next.
0: So since then, there's been a lot of weaselly talk by uh, Kevin McCarthy and others saying, oh, actually, they didn't mean to imply that the people who actually stormed the Capitol were engaged in legitimate political discourse. But Linda, I find all of this a little hard to credit since everybody knows that when you say January 6th, what you're referring to is the violence at the Capitol And uh, let me ask it this way. Um, People are always looking for a pivot moment when people will finally say, ah, you see now there are little, little hairline fractures in the Republican coalition. Do you see them? I mean, McConnell did make a fairly strong statement. What do you think? Well,
2: whether or not this will be a pivot moment, I, I cannot uh, predict. I will say that the notion that they meant to exclude all of the people who stormed the Capitol and went inside, defaced it, put feces on the wall, stole things, violently attacked more than 140 police officers, that they meant to exclude those persons when they were talking about legitimate political discourse is, to put not too fine a point on it, BS. I Mm -hmm. mean, it is nonsense. There is no way that Rona McDaniel, the Republican National Committee, we're not attempting to whitewash what happened on January 6th, and they cannot be allowed to do that. And Kevin McCarthy is totally spineless. He quakes in his boots at the very thought that Donald Trump might, in some way, disapprove of something he has said, that he might get called names by people like Tucker Carlson. Thankfully, Senator McConnell is not frightened. And whatever else you may think of McConnell, he is a very smart man. He wants an opportunity to take back the U.S. Senate. Uh, He's a very uh, effective majority leader, and he looks forward to having that role again. So I don't know why members of Congress are so spineless who happen to be Republicans, but uh, they better wise up because I think the closer we get to the 2022 elections, this is not going to redound to their benefit.
0: Tom Nichols, the Republican Party came into being basically in the 1856 presidential contest. They have published a party platform every year since 1856, except for 2020, when they basically announced that they were no longer a political party, but a personality cult. They published a single sheet of paper saying that the Republican National Committee is for the America First policies of Donald Trump. And that's that. You know, after January 6th, you would have thought that there would be a moment of, of clarity, but no. When Nikki Haley was asked about this, she said that she didn't like Republicans criticizing other Republicans. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, your response? Well, first, there's a reason that I'm proud of pioneering the hashtag NeverHaley <laughs> on uh, Twitter back in the day. But You know, part of the thing we're all trying to talk around here with people like Ronald McDaniel and and the institutional Republican Party, they are insisting that we adhere to previous norms of discussion in which we accept their statements in good faith when they are obviously practicing bad faith. And so they're constantly putting us in the position, well, you know, we didn't really mean the people that were smearing feces on the wall. We meant, someone else. Even Mitch McConnell, you know, of course, this was a terrible thing. These might be microscopic cracks in the wall, but there's a kind of, I don't want to use the term gaslighting, which has become so fashionable, but there is a sleight of hand. There's a kind of rhetorical ledger domain going on here where we really think it's great that the Senate minority leader accepts that attacking the Capitol was bad, but somehow neglects to say things like, the president of the United States, a man I've known for 37 years, won the election and we hope to win elections in the future, but Americans need to come together, understand that our elections are fair and free and so on. And and instead he gives this kind of choked, short bark about, you know, well, it was a fine, it was an insurrection. And we all say, God, how wonderful, finally, Hmm. to hear this. And I think it tells you about the complete collapse of the Republican Party, not just as a as a cult of personality, but that it's become nothing more than a a kind of a flag of convenience for a group of various political entrepreneurs of various stripes who don't really care about anything. And that's not really a party. That's a loose coalition of opportunists. That's not actually a political party that stands for anything. So I, I guess what I'll say here is we all need to lower our expectations about the rifts and divisions in the Republican Party because they're all floating on the same ship, and none of them are going to pull the cork in the hold and sink that ship by saying the truth about things like elections
0: damon i'm very um I'm very skeptical on McConnell myself I have to say i mean you know he comes out and says it was an insurrection, it was terrible. But he has also said in the recent past that he supports Donald Trump for president in 2024 if Trump should choose to run. He declined to vote for impeachment and to encourage his conference to vote for impeachment. That would have prevented this wicked and evil person from ever holding public office again. He he didn't do it. Yeah,
3: I mean, to me, this little statement from McConnell is vintage McConnell. I mean, he is the premier Machiavellian of the party. And as the party has become crazier, he's kind of moved with it. So the things that he now tries to justify are, proportionally crazier than they used to be but his his MO has not changed and that is he wants to advance the power of the Republican Party as an institution as much as he possibly can while triangulating among the various factions in the party and what you heard him saying was effectively smacking down the RNC which put him in his capacity as that kind of cheerleader and strategist for the party in a very tough position because the fact is that Republican public opinion is, as I say on this podcast quite often, is very much still in Donald Trump's pocket, but there are fissures. If you ask, did Trump win the 2020 election and was it stolen from him by the Democrats, you get over a majority agreeing with that statement. But if you ask questions about the actual insurrection on the date of January 6th, the numbers are lower and more conflicted. There are lots of Americans who are willing to kind of go along with a vague notion of, yeah, Biden's illegitimate. He didn't really win. But they're not willing to say, yeah, that was great how these lunatics broke in to Congress and chased off senators and congressmen to their offices in fear for their lives, threatened to decapitate the vice president and so forth. So the RNC, by taking such a draconianly pro- January 6th position has put McConnell and a lot of his members in a difficult spot. He has a bunch of people up for re election in the Senate coming up in 2022, and he doesn't want them to have to face voters in their states who may really have been turned off by January 6th and don't want to think that the Republican Party is on principle in favor of that kind of behavior. And so he's basically. Basically smacking the RNC and saying, get off my back. I'm not gonna back you up on this one and just let me do what I'm doing, which is to try to muddy the waters as much as possible. Let (laughs) the members of the party who are in far-right red districts and love all this Trumpian stuff, let them do what they need to do. Let the people from kind of purple states who are barely hanging on let them be more statesmanlike and moderate. And then hopefully we'll get a majority and get to rule again. That's always what McConnell cares about. And I see that's exactly, I think, what he was doing this week with that
0: statement. So, Damon, I have to beg to differ with you for once because, and I'm going to defend the uh, January 6th rioters because you said they threatened to decapitate Mike Pence. And in fact, they only threatened to hang him. Oh, so, that's you know. true. It was a noose and not a guillotine. I
3: forgot. That's right. Was, I, I
0: mixed up my, my insurrectionary <laughs> imagery
3: there. I'm very sorry about that. Well,
0: okay. Well, moving on to Bill Galston. So Bill, one of the things that you hear when Democrats are trying to flesh out how they're going to run in their various races this year There's some hesitancy about running against the Republicans as the party that is a threat to democracy because they look at the experience of what happened to McAuliffe in Virginia and they think, well, McAuliffe tried to make the election about that and that was terrible. He was defeated. So maybe we just can't even talk about these issues Do you think they should or can? And if you think they can, how? What's the best way to make this a political issue? Well, first of all, (laughs) and I chuckle at what I'm about to
4: say, even if nobody else does, I find myself the odd man out in this conversation because I'm going to defend Mitch McConnell. And let me put it this way if I were to respect only the people in politics who do the right thing for the right reason. I'm afraid my circle of respect would be quite circumscribed. I'm certainly willing to believe, based on the overwhelming majority of past evidence, that Mitch McConnell is a hard-edged partisan. Nevertheless, he said the right thing. As soon as he said it, yes, he could have gone farther, but he went far enough to open up a political space for a lot of other Republican senators to begin to make similar comments. He empowered them. He protected them. I think that's a good thing. I'm certainly not demanding of Republicans, let alone Republican leaders, that they begin to act in the best interests of the opposition party. But I do think that when somebody who's in a tough spot because of intraparty conflict stands up and says at least some of the right things for whatever reason, the person deserves a certain amount of praise mixed with whatever compliment of of blame you care to assess. With regard to the second question, which is the question you actually asked me before I began freelancing, I don't think that preserving silence on the issue of democracy and threatening legitimate election results and basic constitutional institutions is a subject about which the Democrats should remain silent. On the other hand, if it becomes the centerpiece of the campaign, I'm afraid that past is prologue. It can be an element of the fall campaign, but there has to be a much broader message behind that campaign. However central we on this program think it is, Those views are not widely shared in the electorate, at least not widely enough to turn the midterm into a referendum on democracy rather than a referendum on Joe Biden and the Democratic Congress. It just won't work.
0: Right. Okay. And in light of your comments about McConnell opening up space, uh, it should be noted that there were a handful, let's say, of Republican senators who also criticized the RNC We had Susan Collins, who said it was absurd. You had Lindsey Graham, John Cornyn, Shelley Moore Capito. And I don't know if I should include Joni Ernst in this category or not. Joni Ernst made a weird statement where she said it wasn't the role of the RNC to censure members of Congress. That should be left to the states. (laughs) (laughs) which is a weird wording. But in any event, it's certainly true. And of course, did I mention Romney? But Romney doesn't need McConnell's permission to say what he thinks, as we've seen. So um, unless anybody would like to add something about legitimate political discourse, we can move on to our next topic. So we have had week after week of high stress and tension regarding what the hell Putin is going to do in Ukraine. The number of troops keeps increasing. The readiness of those troops apparently is being upgraded with shipments of things like plasma that you would only need if you were anticipating casualties to the front lines and so forth. So I want to start With you, Tom Nichols, you are a foreign policy guru and you've written that you used to be in favor of friendlier relations between the U.S. and Russia, but there was one person who talked you out of it. And who was that?
1: (laughs) Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. (laughs) In fact, I was um, among our conservative brethren back in the day. I was considered something of a Russophile squish Mm. Because I supported the early expansion of NATO to Poland, Czech Republic, and Hungary, but then I wanted us to go slow. Been bringing in the Baltics and and other countries, and I I didn't see the need to continue in a, a long running antagonism with Russia. Um, a lot of us who were optimistic back in the day, we still wonder if you know was Putin always like this? Did he change? But I don't think any of that's relevant now. I mean, Putin's shown his cards. He has decided that staying in power is his safest bet. He will never step down. We, we actually thought that could happen 12 years ago. It didn't. And part of staying in power is snuffing out democracy anywhere near himself, and making it clear that he is a friend to autocrats everywhere. This is part of his relationship with Syria and China. But I also, I I think too, that I I don't really have a lot of evidence for this theory that he's losing his marbles, Um, but there is also a kind of weird Soviet nostalgia to the guy. And there always has been. He told president Bush 43 back in 2006, Ukraine's not a country. It just isn't. This is not a guy who misses the Soviet Union's communism. He's the richest man in the world. He's not going to be a big fan of socialism. But there is a part of him that just feels like is carrying this huge Russian insecurity and grievance around with him. And I think that meshes quite well with his self-interest in telling his own people, these Slavs, these 40 million Slavs next door choosing democracy, you know, don't get any ideas about that. Um, he hates these color revolutions. He hated them in Georgia. He hates them in, in Ukraine. So is he going to go? I think we have to stop thinking of that as a binary choice. I think he's already going. He's already conducting war in Ukraine. He has since 2014. He's conducting cyber war. But will there be a massive invasion? This is one place where I say those words that nobody wants to say. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Can I just ask you one other just detail? Because a lot of the conversation that you hear about NATO expansion and Ukraine seems to imply that the US has somehow been inviting NATO and the Europeans. They've been inviting Ukraine to join NATO. But I, my understanding is it was mentioned in 2008 when Ukraine requested it, and it was slow walked. I mean, it's not as if we have our arms wide open. I mean, isn't that right?
1: Yeah, but, you know, the way NATO did that at a a summit, they basically said Georgia and Ukraine will join NATO one day.
0: Hmm. And
1: the Russians have been dining out on that ever since, even though the Russians know... Ukraine isn't joining NATO anytime soon. I mean, one thing Putin understands is as long as there are are Russian troops in Ukraine, you know, Ukraine is not going to join NATO. And that's partly why he's doing what he's doing. But it, it was dumb. I mean, I think American foreign policy and alliance foreign policy from 1992, right through the invasion of Georgia has been kind of clumsy and wrong-footed and inconstant, and that's a bipartisan problem that, you know, we convinced ourselves that this is an Asian century and old Europe doesn't really need our attention. And that has really come around to bite us in in the butt. And we didn't just say, well, Ukraine's been invited in and now we're just going to do it. But the Russians have really been making a lot of hay out of what I think was an intemperate approach from NATO uh, 14 years ago, And um, now we can't walk it back. And as I've argued this with a lot of folks, even if we never wanted Ukraine to join, you don't discuss these things with a gun to your head.
0: Yeah, that's the problem. What do you make of this, Bill? You've been pleased that Biden has held the alliance together and so forth. But do you agree with Tom that this sort of originated out of a blunder on our part? In the main, I do. Although the argument that Putin
4: wouldn't be pressing on Ukraine, which he does not regard as a real country. That's absolutely true. The notion that he wouldn't be doing that but for us, I think is open to serious question. This is a man, after all, who has stated publicly and repeatedly that he regards the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And it's very clear that he will try to recreate the power the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union, if not its old ideology, for reasons that Tom made very clear, to the extent that he can. I have read and written about the essay that he wrote in July of last year, justifying the proposition that Ukraine isn't a real independent country. And I think that he is doing what He has wanted to do and would always have wanted to do after the collapse of the Soviet Union, even with much abler and subtler Western diplomacy. Having said that, I think it's important to point out, at least this is my understanding of what happened at that summit in 2008, that George Bush was gung ho for a process that would have led to a very rapid entrance of Ukraine into NATO. Tom can correct me if I'm wrong. And most of the other members of NATO said, whoa, wait a minute, there's some problems here. And so what emerged from that 2008 meeting was an ungainly and counterproductive compromise. It would have been better if there had been no language on Ukraine and NATO whatsoever, and but for pressure from the United States, that's probably what the outcome would have been. And so you can view this Ukraine problem in part as the last gasp of the ambitions that George W. Bush declared in his second inaugural address. And this is what that kind
0: of rhetorical overreach can lead to. Hey, Linda, there is a significant now school of thought on the right, you know, Senator Josh Hawley and Ross Douthat and many others that definitely want to retrench quite a bit from the more extravagant ambitions of, of the uh, George W. Bush years, and especially that second inaugural, which set very, very high standards. But the question about how far this retrenchment ought to go is a, a live matter, so there was an op-ed in the New York Times by Saurabh Amari, Patrick Denineen, and uh, Gladden Pappen that basically called for a complete radical change from the idea that the United States has any business promoting democracy, human rights, or free trade, or any of those things around the world. So... Where does it end? You know, how, can we be more modest about what what we can achieve without giving up all of our idealistic hopes for world leadership?
2: Well, number one, I think that the idea that we can create democracies in any country in the world that we choose is not realistic. I think we've seen what's happened when we've tried. To, To establish democratic governments in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere, it doesn't always work. There does need to be a culture that is amenable to democracy, and you have to have people within the country who absolutely want that. We're not talking about that kind of situation with Ukraine. Ukraine is a functioning democracy. The Ukrainian people have chosen the democratic way. And what we are talking about now is aggression by the Russians and by Vladimir Putin, who has already taken territory in Crimea, where there is ongoing fighting in the Donbass region, where we now see up to 100,000 Russian troops amassed around the borders of Ukraine possibly about to have a full-scale invasion of that country. So that's a long way away from what we were talking about in terms of George W. Bush's ambitions, which I think were not always realistic. I I guess I'm troubled by the notion that in order to not get involved uh, more than we might want, that somehow, if only we can give... Putin some kind of assurance that Ukraine is never going to become part of NATO. I guess he also wants acceptance of uh, his having taken uh, by force uh, Crimea. I think that's a terrible, terrible idea. And I think it goes against everything that at least modern conservatives have believed. And I think when you're talking about people like Sora Bamari and Patrick Deneen and others, you're talking about a new nationalist conservatism that is a throwback, I think, to the early 20th century, which is isolationist, and which, frankly, if we were to adopt that model, could end up making America much more vulnerable. I mean, we saw what happened uh, in the early 20th century when the United States essentially wanted to stay apart from European or other conflicts and when we wanted to have like walls around the United States, which did not get us involved uh, in the rest of the world in terms of trade and, and other things, immigration, et cetera it didn't work well. And uh, we had two world wars and the Second World War in particular. And I'm just really nervous when conservatives in particular start talking about retrenching and not believing that it is uh, America's role in the world to stand as a beacon of freedom and democracy and to stand with our democratic allies. And that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about anything other than standing by Ukraine in Ukraine's time of need. And I think what Biden is doing is absolutely appropriate, and uh, I give him kudos for it.
0: So, Damon, one of the things that is at stake, it seems to me, for American leadership right now is that if Putin is able to strong arm the U.S. and NATO into concessions by massing troops on the border, not only would that be devastating for Ukraine itself, but it also would send a signal of weakness to the Chinese, for example, who have similar designs on Taiwan. Do you agree that that's a danger?
3: Uh, It is potentially a danger. I think that there are a number of directions that we could go. There's the kind of pure hawkish position, which is we need to stand up to Putin on Ukraine's behalf and stand with them now, even if it leads to war and maybe even our involvement with it. At the other extreme, you have the Saurabh Omari and Patrick Deneen and and Gladden Pappen position, which is the opposite extreme of basically we should be less confrontational with Russia and China. And then you have the Hawley position, which, you know, I'll grant Josh Hawley is is a bad actor who just sort of adopts positions for the sake of personal political calculations. We saw that with the way he was very gung-ho about withdrawing from Afghanistan until the moment that... That Joe Biden actually started to do it. And then he immediately flip-flopped to attacking him for withdrawing. But his position is a kind of middle position that basically we should spend less time focused on Europe and prepare instead to confront China. So it's a kind of dove over here to be more of a hawk over there. And there are, you know, legitimate arguments to be made in that direction. There are uh, commentators and analysts around who are are trying to make that case in addition to Hawley. So I think it's worth thinking about and debating at certain times. But this isn't a great time to do it because we are very much involved in this right now. I think Biden is doing an excellent job, frankly. I do worry a little bit about some of the rhetoric about we have to stand with Ukraine, its idealism and defending democracy, simply because the kind of moral logic of that idealism is that we should be willing to fight on their side you know what if Putin did invade and crushed Ukrainian democracy. Would we really just stand back and watch it happen? Well, I do think that is what we would do because there isn't going to be public support for a full-scale war with nuclear power in Russia's near abroad over this issue among the American people. But if that is the case— which I do think it is and which I think Putin knows, then it might be good to not take quite a full-throated rhetorical stand implying that we have to do that or else we've betrayed our own highest ideals. And and, and actually, it's in that spirit that I praise Biden because Biden has made clear we're not going to go to war, but we're going to make this so costly in every other way for Putin, that he would have to be an idiot to do it. That's basically the Biden strategy, if you will, in the region. He's sending extra American troops, lots of supplies for Ukraine, he's keeping the alliance together with frankly, a lot of help from Putin himself. So if his goal, as we've discussed on the podcast over the last few weeks, including when Frank Fukuyama was here, if his goal is to actually split the alliance, his saber rattling and amassing of troops on the border and all around Ukraine is having the opposite effect. And I say, great, that's how it's supposed to work. Tell Putin look, you want to invade, all right, it's not going to be easy. You're going to bleed, and you're going to be suffering from a real backlash at home. And I do think he is a dictator, but... You know, even dictators need to not be uh, on the negative side of a ton of bad news about Russian soldiers returning dead from the front in Ukraine. And I think a lot of Russians would say, wait a minute, why did we do that? And he's aware of that risk. So that's what I think we need to keep doing. And again, I applaud Biden for walking that very delicate line pretty, pretty well overall so far.
0: And let's hope he can keep it up. Okay, Bill Galston, did you have one more thing you wanted to add? Two points very quickly. First of all, I want to make it clear that although I
4: was critical of George W. Bush's diplomacy at the end of his second term, we should stand absolutely foursquare with Ukraine in its moment of need, and this would be the worst possible time to start making concessions under duress, including agreeing to not an outright exclusion of Ukraine from NATO, but some sort of moratorium on inclusion. I think that would give Putin an unjustified success that would only be the consequence of force, which by the way, it's not entirely clear he's willing to use. That's point number one. Point number two, concerning Josh Hawley's too clever by half move, we have to face facts. After the meeting between Putin and Xi Jinping a few days ago, it is now absolutely clear that we face what I call an axis of autocracy that stretches from the Baltic to the Pacific. And the idea that we can confront that axis on one front but not the other is fanciful. There's going to be an interaction between the two as the linkage between weakness on Ukraine here and now, and the future of Taiwan emphasizes, but more broadly, if we believe in what we say we believe in, then we have to stand up for what we believe in, obviously prudentially, not foolishly, not self defeatingly. And I agree that Joe Biden was, on balance, wise to say clearly at the beginning of all of this that we were not going to send American troops to fight. In Ukraine. We couldn't, right? We'd be sending them to a slaughter without escalating to nuclear war. If Vladimir Putin cares so much about Ukraine that he's willing to deploy most of the Russian army to seize it and hold it, there's nothing we can do about that. But we certainly should do nothing to welcome him in and we should do nothing to split the baby. We should be rhetorically staunch and in policy terms, as firm as we can be, consistent with the actual power balance in the region.
0: Okay. So the other famous figure besides Josh Hawley to essentially uh, recommend some sort of surrender here on Ukraine were Ben and Jerry of Ice Cream Fane, who tweeted that they thought we should abandon Ukraine and just do peaceful things around the world? You know that sort of thing. And um, and so my my new bulwark colleague, I thought, had the greatest line because we were on Slack discussing this, and somebody said, "What should the next Ben and Jerry's ice cream flavor be?" And Will said, "A peas mint." <laughs> All right. <laughs> let's now turn to our next topic. So the tide is definitely changing on how to handle the pandemic. Um there have been moves within the last few days by a number of states including a lot of them, well, I guess they're all uh, blue states, to end mask mandates in public places, although not necessarily in schools in all places, but uh, you've had New York, New Jersey, California, Connecticut, Delaware, Oregon, and others. And there was a piece by friend of this podcast, Yasha Monk, in The Atlantic, saying that it is time to open everything up. Now, Yasha wrote a piece back in March of 2020 when he said, close everything down. So he was he's now bookended that um, it, it very nicely. So I want to get your sense. Tom Nichols, I'm going to start with you. Uh, one of Yasha's points was that, look, people have had an opportunity now to make a choice as to whether to be vaccinated or not. If you're vaccinated, you really have extremely low risk so really, there there isn't any reason to keep things closed for the sake of people who have made a decision of their own free will to remain unvaccinated.
1: Yeah. And I have to add, um, the state you missed there is my adopted and tiny state of Rhode Island, which is always overlooked, but our, our mandate's on tomorrow as well. Excellent. Um, Congratulations. You know, the, <laughs> the response to Yasha's piece was nuts Yeah, uh, on social media. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. And I think... I think that the politicization of COVID has now completely seeped in. I'm going to utter those dreaded words into both sides with people, you know, in red hats saying I'm not getting vaccinated, I'm not wearing no, you know, wearing a mask, I'm not doing any of that stuff. And other people saying we are going to keep these mask mandates in just to aggravate you, just to <laughs> just because we can't endure that you got away with not wearing a mask. And I think yeah, I live in true blue New England here. And I, you know, spent a lot of time in our college towns around here. And this, this whole business has become ludicrous of you must mask at every moment, unless you're in a bar, right? you know, children, children are being masked in schools as a penance for people that want to go to Applebee's and, you know, to hang out in bars and go to restaurants and concerts. And I think, I'm not a medical expert, but I have spent a lot of time in politics and public policy. That is bad public policy. When you have a public policy that is widely perceived as kind of stupid and unfair, that erodes the seed corn of credibility that governments will need down the line. And I think, you know, Yasha's point, people jumped all over him about things aren't really closed, but Some of them really are. And the restrictions are, in a lot of places, onerous, especially with regard to children. And now on the left, or what I perceive to be the left anyway, the argument is, well, you can't do this while thousands of people are dying. And yet the sensible answer to that is, but these are thousands of unvaccinated people. As Yasha points out in the piece masking some kid in New York because somebody in Mississippi won't get vaccinated doesn't make any sense. And it's time to just say that. It's time to just say, we have hit the wall on this. There are people who have chosen literally to risk their lives and die, but the rest of us can actually live a fairly normal life. And Joe Biden tried to say that around Christmas time, and he got shelled, and the CDC tried to say it, and they got shelled. And I really think there are people who simply will not let go of kind of the powerful, incantatory power that comes from living in a constant state of emergency. But we can't, that's not sustainable. We can't live that way.
0: Yeah. Bill Galston, one of the things that has tied up the Biden administration, arguably, it tied them up in knots, is that they campaigned on, we're going to follow the science. We're going to do what the experts tell us. Actually, I should have directed this more at Tom Nichols, since you wrote a whole book about the death of expertise. And you can chime in later if you wish. But of course, when it comes to policymaking, I mean, yes, you need experts to advise you on certain aspects of public policy like how contagious is the thing and how effective will masking be but you can't you can't defer to scientists on questions of how do you balance the risks you know how do you balance okay so uh, a few people uh, might die in schools but that's compared with tens of millions of children having their educations stunted. And, and so those are the kinds of trade-offs that policymakers have to make. and it is informed by science, but it's not determined just by scientific concerns, right? I couldn't have said it better, Mona.
4: I, oh, I absolutely thank you. <laughs> agree with you, and I've as the son of a scientist, I've had occasion to observe that many times. and my father, in his later years, moved from pure science to the public dimensions of science. And he knew that he was crossing a line. So I think his position, which is certainly my position, is that you probably shouldn't do anything that presupposes that what science has established pretty firmly as true is in fact false. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a losing proposition. But saying that you should not contradict science in your policy is one thing. But saying that science will determine that policy is a completely different thing. So you're absolutely right. And I hope the phrase follows the science will be banished from our political discourse because it's profoundly misleading. A few other points on this topic. Number one, it's been clear for quite some time that 20% of the population will simply not get vaccinated under any circumstances. We can try to force them to do it. It will not work. So we have to build future policy around the proposition that 20% of our fellow citizens are not going to be vaccinated. We cannot allow that fact to hold the rest of us hostage, that's point number one. Number two, the administration is now facing a blue state rebellion. The nine jurisdictions that have made announcements about loosening or eliminating masking in some all venues are all blue and many of them deeply blue. This should not have come as a surprise to the administration because when the governors met in Washington last month, a number of Democratic governors quietly informed the administration that they were thinking about policy shifts and they urged the administration to consider a shift of its own. This also, I think, points to the importance of public opinion in policymaking. The fact of the matter is, and people can do this by inspecting their own souls as well as reading polls and and talking to others, we're exhausted. We're tired of this. Our sense of the trade-offs is shifting because many Americans just don't want to go on this way any longer. And policy has to be shaped around human nature. And at some point, the dam inevitably would burst. That time is now. It also coincides with a time in which public support for public health institutions like the CDC, particularly at the federal level, is plunging. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the survey on this question that the Pew Research Center published just yesterday. Final point. We are not a national republic, like, for example, the United Kingdom is. We're a federal republic. And what the administration is learning, or learning more about after the Supreme Court began this stern instruction, is that the national government in this country does not control everything. Federalism is real, particularly in matters of public health. Governors have powers, independent powers. The administration has lost control of the situation and it's time for them to regroup and come up with a new position.
0: So Damon Linker, one of the things that you hear when there is now talk among the uh, blue state governors and others of loosening restrictions is the, the people from the red states say, oh, well, we were for this right along. See, now you're late to the party. But that really spectacularly misses the point because, of course, it wasn't appropriate then and it is appropriate now. So this is from Yasha's piece just about the relative risk of being vaccinated and not vaccinated. So- From October to November of 2021, 7.8 out of every 100,000 unvaccinated Americans died from COVID every week. During the same period, 0.6% of every 100,000 vaccinated Americans died during the same period. And among Americans who were also boosted, only 0.1 out of 100,000 died the vaccines changed everything.
3: Yeah. And that translated into slightly more layman's language says that you, if you are fully vaxxed and boosted during October and November, and you came down with COVID, you have a one in a million chance of dying. Yeah. Now, I actually just wrote a column about this subject building on Yasha's peace. And I so I went and looked up some other injury facts and uh, I, I learned some very interesting things. For instance, as of 2019, the chance that you will die in a motor vehicle crash over the course of your entire life is one in 107 Your chance of drowning over the course of your life, one in 1,128. And everyone's favorite example of the worst luck you ever could have in your life, being struck by lightning and dying from it, one in 138,000. Which means that in October and November of last year, if you caught COVID after being vaxxed and boosted, Basically, we're talking about this is like seven times less likely of dying than if you got struck by lightning, which is just completely off the wall nuts if you think about it in terms of risk aversion. Now, of course... There are a lot of people still around in this country who who consider that too great a risk, although I don't think they fully imbibed the truth of this. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, on the other side, it's not that we're dealing with all these manly Republicans who are out there saying, we don't care, we're willing to fight in the trenches and, you know, take... Uh, take Europe from the Nazis on D-Day, whereas these, you know, wimpy Democrats, I mean, they, they have their own cockamamie risk aversion calculations because they actually think that it's riskier to get a vaccine shot than it is to face COVID with no protection, which is equally, maybe not equally, but it, it it's truly strange as a decision making. But the trick is, as in many things in our politics, is to avoid these extremes, both of which are, are really quite unhealthy and not really informed by a very reasonable way of living our lives. Life is full of risks, but thank goodness we have vaccines. And if you get the vaccine and then get boosted, unless we get a new variant, which could happen that's much more deadly, like right. at least up till now, you're really pretty safe. You might get it. And it'll probably be like a cold or maybe a kind of a case of the flu, which isn't great. I'd rather not get it. But if I did, I I, you know, I don't sit around worrying I'm going to get struck by lightning either. But at this point, I'm very happy to say I don't really fear that I'm going to die of COVID-19. And for that, we have... The, the, the companies that created the mNRA vaccines. And it's a great triumph of science. But that is our ticket out of here. We've seen enough. We have enough evidence. And it's re- I really do think it is time.
0: Yeah. Linda, I'm not an epidemiologist, but um, it does also strike me as a layperson that it is probably significant also that while, yes, we could get another variant and that they could prove very deadly and we can't rule that out the variants that have hit so far, like it does seem that if you've had one, it gives you immunity, at least partial protection against another variant. And and we know that the vaccines have been effective against the different variants and they can tweak the vaccines. So it just seems that between the people who've been vaccinated and the people who've been infected, we really are looking at a kind of hopeful future at this point. What, do you share my, my optimism? Wouldn't it
2: be nice? I, <laughs> I hope so. Look, I, would, I think I was the first person I knew uh, to put on a mask. I put one on, I think it was on March 9th, 2020, uh, because I was traveling and there was this thing, this new disease out there called uh, COVID-19. And there wasn't a whole lot of advice out there. In fact, People like Dr. Fauci. I think we're saying, "No, oh, no, no, you don't need to wear masks." Well, I thought, mm, I think I'm going to wear a mask, and I did. I may be the last person to wear a mask in certain conditions, <laughs> and that will be my choice.
0: That's um, fine. Yeah. I mean, there
2: are all sorts of advantages when you're a 74 year old woman to wearing a mask. You don't have to do full face makeup. Uh, you don't <laughs> have to worry about your facial expressions maybe offending somebody uh, if you've got a little piece of lettuce in your between your teeth, it covers it up. I mean, there are some advantages. So um, so I'm not going to necessarily give up my mask when I travel in airplanes or when I go to the theater or am in very close quarters for a while yet. However, the idea that we absolutely have to have these mandates, obviously, given the experience of the last month or, or so, we are still having people die. I mean, about 2,500 people a day are still dying from COVID. Many of them, uh, most of them are unvaccinated. And some of them, I believe, may still be dying from Delta, not necessarily from Omicron. Um, So I think, you know, the, the step that the Democratic states have made, including my second home of Colorado, to lift the mask mandates makes sense. And you know, going back to what Bill said at the beginning of, of this segment about following the science and how we have to be careful to say that that's what we're going to do, the fact is science is not dogma. Science is not written in stone, and, and particularly when you're dealing with a new disease and it's a disease that's barely, you know, two years, two and a half years old that it's been out there uh, infecting people. Science and science's interpretation of what to expect is going to change in that period. And I'm willing to understand that circumstances change, our understanding of the disease changes. And therefore, when it comes to the government getting involved in telling us what to do, I'm willing to say it's time for an end to the mask mandates, given local circumstances and how many people are hospitalized, whether there is a strain in local hospitals, it always probably should have been local mandates, not necessarily one size fits all, because as everybody on this program has noted, the disease rates in, in very red and often rural states have been very, very different than they have in areas, the coastal areas, for example. So I may still keep my mask around. It'll be an N95, and I may still choose to wear it, but I'm happy that I'm not going to be
0: told that I must wear it. All right. With that, we will turn to our final segment. All right. We've now come to the highlight or low light of the week section, and I'll start with Damon Linker.
3: Well, my uh, highlight uh, of the week is something by uh, another friend of the podcast who's been a guest before Noah Smith, the economist who writes usually for Bloomberg, but also has an excellent substack. And on his substack this week, he wrote a really great piece critical of a New York Times profile of an economist named Stephanie Kelton, who is famous for popularizing what is called modern monetary theory. Which is also often uh, abbreviated as MMT, which some people describe uh, pejoratively as magic money tree theory of economic policy. This is basically a theory that holds that there should be no constraints on government spending, that deficits don't matter, and that we should just spend, spend, spend. This is very different than uh, more conservative forms of economic policy uh, outlook, but also very different than uh, what is more prevalent among liberal policymakers. And it's it's so far out that uh, in recent times, even Bernie Sanders has distanced himself from it, but it remains very popular on the left. And uh, of course, because we're suffering from inflation now, which is what uh, more traditional economics would predict would be the result of overspending and heating things up too much, we now have a kind of a, a moment for modern monetary theory that's a little embarrassing. It's seems to be on the decline. And along comes the New York Times with a kind of puff piece about it with this profile of Kelton written by a woman journalist named Jenna Similek. And again, Noah does a, a really good job of just patiently explaining that this piece is really a joke It shows very little understanding of the underlying economics. It relies almost entirely on its explanation of what modern monetary theory is, on what Kelton has to say about it, which is uh, uh, certainly very one-sided. And the author of the piece does very little to talk to critics, uh, despite the fact that they include pretty much the entirety of the economics profession. So boo on The New York Times for publishing this piece, and cheers to Noah Smith, who then, by the way, uh, in predictable fashion, came in for a lot of online abuse and from a few other outlets that published pieces accusing him of being a sexist because Kelton is a woman and the author of the Times piece is a woman. So therefore, he was just, you know, attacking women here. Uh, so that that's my choice for the week.
0: <laughs> Thanks for that. I, by the way, I did read that piece. And I had the impression, this could be wrong, but I had the impression that it was drafted before the big spike in inflation kind of seemed to have been in the works for a while. And then they sort of like tacked on a few little things like, oh, well, could inflation possibly cast a pall over this MMT? But it was all very sort of, I don't know, it, it, it was a little bit discordant with the overall cheerleading tone of the piece, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, they obviously had to address that objection. Although right. if you ask any economist about this theory from the beginning, they would always say, yeah, but what about inflation? So exactly. it's not, it's Not like it's a new a new thing. Right.
2: Okay. Thanks. Linda Chavez. Well, Whoopi Goldberg got herself in a lot of trouble for opining that the Holocaust was not about race, and she was quickly corrected. Well, there was a very interesting article that appeared in a Jewish publication called Mosaic, and it was In their column by a fellow named Philologus, which I assume is a pseudonym, and it has to do with, you know, philology, and the article was entitled, Race, a Word of Surprisingly Recent and Uncertain Origin. What the article goes on to point out is that, first of all, the the term race, the concept of race as defining a group of people— is relatively recent. It goes back to the 15th century, and it is Spanish and has much to do with the Spanish concept of what's called limpieza de sangre, or purity of blood. This was critical to the Spanish Inquisition. And of course, it was applied to Jews. But as the article points out, modern day Jews, and certainly Jews as a group in America, I don't think often think of themselves in racial terms as a race. They rather rightly note that Judaism is a religion and that it is passed down through the mother, but that it is, as we think of it today, not necessarily a racial term. But the article goes to great lengths to point out that there is a lot of Jewish angst about whether Judaism is a race or not. And it goes into some of that history. It goes into some of the biblical discussions of uh, Judaism as a race. And uh, Abraham's seed uh, being greater, populating the world and being greater than the stars in the sky. Uh, And I just found it a fascinating article and I thought put the whole Whoopi Goldberg controversy in a somewhat new context. So I recommend it.
0: Okay, thank you. Bill Galston. Well, believe it or not, my low
4: light of the week changed because of a news flash that. uh, appeared on my screen while we've been having this conversation. Here's the headline. The Deputy Attorney General of Virginia, you know, appointed at the beginning of the new Youngkin administration, resigns after revelation of Facebook posts praising the January 6th rioters and claiming that Trump won the election. And here is the text of the actual Facebook post. Newsflash colon. Patriots have stormed the Capitol. No surprise. The deep state has awoken. (laughs) The sleeping giant. Patriots are not taking this lying down. We are awake, ready, and will fight for our rights by any means necessary. This is not a random crazy person. This is the deputy attorney general of the state of Virginia. And What I draw from this is that Mr. Youngkin, who preserved his political balance pretty well during his campaign, has been losing his balance as governor. And if if more events like this occur, I think it will be quite damaging to his overall administration. This is a disgraceful appointment that should never have been made.
0: (laughs) Um, I would just footnote that by adding, or underline it really, by pointing out that Youngkin was perfectly content to appear on the John Frederick's radio show, very popular right-wing talk show, apparently in the southern part of Virginia. And this is the fellow who, during the campaign, hosted a rally with Steve Bannon that featured the Pledge of Allegiance to a flag that had been at the January 6th. Insurrection, but Youngkin has continued to appear on this John Frederick's radio show. He was also perfectly happy to have Amanda Chase, the crazy woman who describes herself as Trump in heels, campaign for him. So um, I never bought the uh, you know sort of squeaky clean post-Trump image that some people are trying to favor him with. Tom Nichols.
1: Well, it would be an easy lowlight to go for the um, supposed revelation that Donald Trump eats paper. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, I was only surprised that library paste was not involved. But there's an actual scarier national security story there, which is that the president's daily brief, the most highly classified product in the American intelligence community, which is given to the president every morning, apparently Donald Trump would rip pictures out of it, like, you know, like a teenage girl in 1969 ripping pictures of Bobby Sherman out of Tiger Beat or something, and take those pictures with him out of the Oval and back to the residence. And apparently John Kelly tried to stop him from doing this. And it is, you know, just astonishing that we still are finding out what a continual daily threat to American national security, that was represented by the president of the United States, and this kind of links back to the thing we were talking about at the beginning, which is yes, yes, it's fine for you know Mitch McConnell to say, um, you know, to talk about an insurrection and all these other Republicans to kind of engage in a lot of chin pulling about all of this, but um, you know, at some point, when will? Responsible Republicans say this is a person who cannot be allowed to have operational control of the United States military and nuclear weapons that that, you know, this is just behavior that is, aside from being a security threat, it's a reminder of how weird this guy is. Um, you know, that he that he's literally ripping pictures out of the PDB for some reason and giving conniptions to his four star Marine chief of staff, who, by the way, still has not spoken up
0: on any of this. Mm. Uh yeah. God help us. All right. Well, I would like to praise a piece by Kathy Young that appeared in Arc Digital. It was called The Problem with COVID Contrarianism, in which in her usual fashion, Kathy brings quite grounded sanity to this problem of people getting over their skis on issues. So she acknowledges, for example, that yes, uh, some of the public health authorities did do things that were discrediting like suggest after saying that you know you couldn't even attend your grandmother's funeral during the early months of covid that you absolutely should attend a protest of George Floyd's uh, murder and so on. So, you know, she acknowledges that that was bad and it it brought the experts into disrepute. On the other hand, some people, especially on the right, have taken COVID contrarianism to such crazy lengths that it seems to have unhinged people who were otherwise pretty pretty well grounded. And, uh, you know, this notion of conspiracies to uh, take away our liberty and, uh, and on and on. Anyway, it's a very, very well done piece, highly recommended. The Problem with COVID Contrarianism, Kathy Young. With that, I would like to thank our guest this week, Tom Nichols, for joining us again. Great to have you. I also would like to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri Mose. And I thank all of you for listening, and especially those of you who are kind enough to write reviews and ratings for us, which really does help bring the podcast to the attention of people who may not yet know about it. So thank you for that. And can always write to me at monacharin at And I welcome all of your responses. And we will return next week as every week.